Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to the show. So the BBC and its director general, Tim Davey, a former Conservative candidate, have been forced into a humiliating climb down over Gary Lineker. So just a little little recap. I think we all know what happened. Gary Lineker made parallels between the rhetoric used by the Conservative government towards refugees fleeing violence, persecution, and dictatorship with rhetoric used in the 1930s in Germany, a view which has been backed up by... Uh, for example, a Holocaust survivor who challenged the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, back in January, and also Alf Dubs, of course, who fled Nazi-occupied uh, Europe um, as one of the children who fled the genocidal regime of the Nazis. Gallinica wasn't comparing the current situation to Nazi Germany in terms of policy, but he was making parallels with rhetoric. I think we all know that. Anyway, a BBC, which has variously tolerated the likes of Alan Sugar, uh, um, tweeting images of Jeremy Corbyn superimposed next to Adolf Hitler um, and Andrew Neil, the flagship politics presenter for many years, chairing a hard right magazine, which turns out articles such as in defense of the Wehrmacht and uh, praising uh, Greek neo-Nazis. Not Andrew Neil who wrote those, but articles published by the hard right magazine he published, uh, he was chair of, um, as well as Andrew Neil um, using social media for many years to promote right wing political opinions including actually savaging my colleague Carol Cadwell as a mad cat lady. Lovely stuff. Anyway, lots of the hypocrisy has been pointed out. Now, as I've said, Gary Lineker has scored a, 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 a hat-trick, or how many, however, however big the margin of goal victory you think this is over the BBC. It's quite substantial, I would say. Um, now, it's, it's very clear, I think, to most people that the BBC did this under pressure from the Conservative government. One of the things I do want to talk about myself is I think this was unfortunate overreach on the part of the Conservatives because they picked a fight with a household name who's actually very, very well admired and respected across the country. Gary Lineker is no radical socialist by any stretch. He is, I would say, a centrist dad. And I say that with no animosity. I've actually got a huge amount of affection uh, for Gary Lineker. Um, But the right have been so successful in dominating and shaping political discourse in this country that I think they essentially thought they could get away with anything. They ate up the left for lunch. Um, but rather than their the, the appetite being satiated, they just got hungrier and fattier, fatter and decided they wanted to eat up liberals and centrists uh, for, for, for dinner. Um, but I think this is interesting because it was overreach. And this could be an important milestone in terms of uh, pushing back on the right-wing attempt to turn this country into a hostile environment for all opinions except those which happen to align with the partisan and electoral and political interests of the Conservative Party, which has radicalised, I would say, in power. But I do what I want to talk about today is, later I'll be talking to the brilliant Shaisa Aziz, who is from Three Hijabis, about 
about the broader issues of racism, um, not just in football, but in broader society and pushing back on that and the scapegoating of refugees and migrants for all the ills caused by the powerful. But also I want to talk about the nature of the BBC and the political nature of the BBC, how it's been politicised, how we got in what you could describe as this mess. It didn't come out of a clear blue sky, but this has been a long time uh, coming. And actually, you know, the BBC for a very long time has been a fertile recruiting ground for Tory spin, uh, spin doctors. Every single Tory prime minister since 2010 has recruited, apart from this trust, I don't think she counts, um, from from the BBC. Oh, Rishi Sunak as well. So Boris Johnson, Liz, uh, so Boris Johnson, Theresa May, and David Cameron, and George Osborne did. Um, but also um, the nature of the BBC in terms of is it really independent from the government, um, and is that something which actually predates Conservative rule in 2010? Certainly. Um, so we're going to talk to the brilliant Tom Mills about that, who is really the go-to guy, I would say, in the BBC on these particular issues. Before we bring him in, I'm just going to hear, let's just hear from Tim Davey, who is the former Tory candidate, sorry, the Director General of the BBC. Let's hear from How him. are you so out of touch with your own corporation, your own organisation, your own staff, your own programmes, that you didn't foresee this complete chaos that's happened to the organisation? Well, look, I respect the views of um, the sports teams. They obviously were put in a very difficult situation. I think people across the BBC, if you talk to them, are all very passionate about our standing as an impartial broadcaster. So important in this world. And this affair tells you how polarised debate has come. There are many people and all they see here is a Conservative Director General and a Conservative Chairman bowing to pressure from Conservative MPs and the Conservative press. I can tell you, anyone who knows me knows that, yes, 30 years ago, some political involvement, but absolutely not affected by pressure from one party or the other. That is not how we work editorially in the BBC. A little plug there for Joe. They did put out the clips. I think it's fair that we show their proper credit. Uh, if you're watching live, do click on the YouTube link and press like and subscribe. Um, you can support the show using Super Chat as ever. I will put those questions to the guests and thank you all at the end. And do support us on patreon.com for slash omjoes84 to keep the show on the road. Tom Mills, who is the author of a brilliant book on the BBC. What's the title again, Tom? That's so embarrassing. It's literally on the bookshelf there as well. A public, hold on. It's yeah, on my, it's, it's on my, no, it's on my I'm shelf. Sure. It's literally one of those um, books. I thought you were talking about my shelf. Yeah, I've got all copies up there, I think, under the camel. Um, it's called The BBC Myth of a Public Service. Yes, that's it. Everyone read that because it provides brilliant context for what we're going to talk about. Um, Tom, okay, so... The, the, the narrative that's been woven for a very long time is that the BBC does have a bias, and it's biases to the left. What mm. do you say to that? Well, there's quite a lot of research on the BBC's output. Um, the BBC is kind of a, if anything, I'd say it's an over-researched organisation. I probably shouldn't say that as a researcher of the BBC, but there's loads of work on the BBC, and it sort of broadly fits into two categories. One is like sort of historical and occasionally ethnographic studies. So in other words, you go into an archive and you see what people were saying to each other at the BBC, or you spend some time at the BBC just um, amongst journalists or editors or whatever. So that's one category of work. And another one is you look at the BBC's output. Um, how does it report? You try and measure um, who appears on the BBC, how if issues are um, reported, who, who gets to speak, who doesn't get to speak, and so on. And you put, put these two together, you get quite a rich record of what, who, you know, how the BBC operates, like in terms of its internal mechanisms, in terms of uh, how it reports. So what I was trying to do in the book is combine some of my own research, um, which used archival, mainly archival um, work and, and interviews with BBC journalists and editors, 
and combine that with the existing work. So we know a lot about the BBC. Now there's, there's basically, so there's basically two sorts of sources. Like um, one is the peer reviewed academic studies that look at how the BBC reports. Um, what they tend to find is that its coverage is dominated by politicians, by officials, by powerful interests in society that um, it's not that other voices don't appear, it's just that they tend to be in quite marginalized sort of positions. And that's quite a long standing body of work. Then there's other work done by um, right wing think tanks, which basically claims exactly what you say is the dominant um, argument about what the BBC is. In other words, that it's a left wing organization. And that's usually based on two things um, either one, a sort of um, kind of liberal metropolitan bias, or, or I suppose relatedly, this kind of anti EU thing. Now, an interesting detail, by the way, of Richard Sharp was that he um, provided funding to a think tank which produced this kinds of work criticizing BBC bias um, and may have done so indirectly as well because his foundation which he funded provided funds to an organization that has also provided that supported that kind of work so there's this kind of like corner of the right the kind of hard right Brexit right which is has, has this sort of obsession with the BBC as a liberal institution I think it's complicated by the character of the BBC because the BBC is a very large organisation, has very wide kind of output. And at its core, um, because we're both people who are on the left and interested in politics, at its core, you get the news and current affairs output, which is what my work is focused on and what most of your discussion will be based on, which is, and you get quite a lot of conservative figures involved there. And you get quite a lot of conservative figures at the top of the BBC. But when the right looks at the BBC, they basically see a London-based kind of uh, liberal institution. And, and Gary Lineker becomes sort of symbolic of that, I think. This idea that um, there's a particular... Basically, for them, the political spectrum is between sort of Blairite to hardline Brexit. And, and then it stops there, right? That's why they got so confused and furious during the Corbyn period and weren't really sure how to process all of that. And I think that's also why the, the BBC, people at the BBC himself, found it a little bit disorientating. They don't... It's like people don't really quite know where to sort of put my critique of the BBC, partly because it just doesn't sort of fit within um, that, that kind of public discourse that, that you mentioned. Put these two, two things together. I mean, a charitable way of thinking about it would be that they're sort of talking past each other here. One group of people is saying that BBC re reflects the interests, uh, reflects powerful interests in society. And the other one is saying that, look, it has a broadly sort of liberal metropolitan character um they're not quite the same thing um but they're also not quite the same sort of research because one of them is being produced is, is sort of pseudo-academic research being produced by pressure groups and the other one is being produced by well mainly liberal social scientists i don't know if i've talked to them not quite answered your question there but um i think the the other thing to put into the picture is that from the perspective of the right and the government it's a mobilizing rhetoric against the bbc right and there's also a rational political strategy here they, the, the, the BBC is different to the press. It does have certain professional standards that from their perspective makes it look more liberal. It is more liberal than the sun, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't on some issues it does, but generally the BBC doesn't report things that are, that are not true. Um, usually it, it will report accurately. What, what we call bias tends to be around like selection and on certain issues it has very, it has very poor records. But generally speaking, it's a bit more accurate. It's a bit more professional in its tone and in its content than the right. So you put all of that together, you think there's a rational strategy, there's a certain conception of the political spectrum and so on. It all comes together with this kind of conservative fantasy of um, an overbearing liberal institution that needs to be reined in. Um, and then that leads to this, you know, appointment of people like Robbie Gibb and Richard Sharp as these sort of um, 
you know, point men, and they tend to be men for for the for the for the right. It's interesting too. A few years ago, Cardiff University did detailed uh, research, which they basically the the argument was there was a pro-establishment bias. The BBC. So, yeah. for example, during the financial crisis, um, voices from the city, if you like, prominent bankers, were interviewed not as those who should, you know, in the dock to be essentially interrogated about the disaster unfolding because of the financial sector, but as witnesses. Um, but also, they looked at, for example, you know, the evening news. Um, trade union voices were something like 20 times less likely to be interviewed than business leaders, even though trade union leaders represent a democratic yeah, movement, represent millions of people. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not just one study. I mean, that's a consistent finding of any any examination. There have been several very good studies of the BBC's economics reporting since 2008 and before, actually, going back to the 1970s. The BBC just did a big review of it, actually accepted a lot of the critical work that had been done examining its content and funny enough actually the BBC funds a lot of this work um, and and then ignores it but um, when it comes to its policy so yeah there's there's a lot of work like that but then I think that that again comes back to this point of that you know the relationship between the right and the BBC the way that the right the right isn't interested in attacking the BBC over economic issues for, for the obvious reasons that you just said I mean it, it's, it would be very happy with the way, the way the BBC um, reports the economy. What we started to call the culture war, you know, which is actually is contestation around important political issues, but is also simultaneously a, a distraction from certain sort of class interests that the right obviously doesn't want to highlight. Um, yeah, is is again can sit alongside that, right? They don't want to talk about political economy. That's the kind of thing which the academic research has has tended to tended to examine. I think the other thing is like, yeah, on, so on political economy. It's quite a good body of work there. But the general finding as well, and this comes is also that um, politicians and Westminster politicians and this surrounding sort of ecosystem of um, think tanks and pundits and newspaper um, columnists, you know, they're the driver. These are the, the drivers of political coverage. So it's and, and that comes across even in economic um, economics mm -hmm. reporting. So, for example, like professional economists, you know, academic economists were marginalized in those debates compared to, say, conservative MPs who don't have a grasp of the economy. But what they do have is slogans, which are rolled out by conservatives, um, you know, central office. So they send they send onto the TV screens to say the same thing again and again and again and again until it starts to dominate the sort of terrain of political debate. So, yeah, it's um, a, a domination of sort of elite economic interests, if you like, alongside of a domination of Westminster. And that's as far as I know, that's pretty much consistent across any sort of content analysis as it gets called of the of the BBC's reporting. It's, and again, it, to, to emphasize the point, it's not it's not other people don't appear. Like you, you will appear on the BBC, obviously, but you tend to appear l less and and as a sort of slightly marginal figure, or it becomes quite difficult to um, intervene, um, however accomplished you are in the sort of mainstream political debate, because you'll sort of sit outside the the, the sort of contours of it in, in various ways. Yeah, I mean, personally, I've been essentially blacklisted by the BBC for the last four years, but we won't go into that. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the BBC's relationship with the government, I'm quite interested in what happened in the 1980s with the Director General Alistair Mill and what we can learn from that. Well, we can learn that the um, British establishment is quite insular because that was Seamus Mill's dad, who was um, Director General of the BBC. And basically what happened was, I mean, to cut a sort of detailed um, story short, is that the, the, the Thatcher government, as it sort of, you know, in its sort of mission to transform British society, its successful, successful mission, 
had a two-pronged attack, which was basically marketization and political, well, repression would be maybe a bit too dramatic way of putting it, but, but appointing people who are politically loyal to the government, to the BBC board. And this basically led to the decapitation, if you like, of the director general there, who wasn't the figure of the left. He was a sort of... Not literally. So just to be clear, not the literal decapitation. (laughs) The figurative decapitation of the BBC, not the decapitation of the director general. Yeah. Um, So he was he was basically summarily summarily dismissed after a series of rows with the government over its reporting, particularly over... Um, issues of war and peace and security in Northern Ireland and so on. So, uh, and, and very similar in some ways to the last 10 years, like attacks from the uh, right wing of the Conservative Party and the right wing press, a sort of division of labour on the right, if you like, that then led to this uh, sort of very, you know, BBC, very, very respectable uh, journalist, really, because not director generals have tended to, to be journalists in the past. And he was replaced by uh, a guy called John Burt as deputy director general. I mean, he was actually replaced by somebody else who wasn't terribly important in the grand scheme of things. That that was the sort of um, step towards an intense marketization of the BBC. Which so where we've ended up today is really. I mean, I think a lot of people are noticing. And I've been trying to say I not to say I told you so and be like because um, it's very graceless isn't it but like a lot of people are noticing for example John Simpson that there's a long-standing problem here with the BBC marketization is the other element that doesn't get much discussed actually even now in like mainstream coverage because it's not seen as being a problem but the um the the limited independence of the BBC I mean this is in reality a, a long-standing problem that gets manipulated to different degrees in different political circumstances. So as you say, it was very, it was, uh, the, the Thatcher government was very willing to press its political advantage there. The Blair government was for a, for a time. And, and now we have the same situation today where the BBC ends up, uh, you know, it, the, the, the amount of independence that the BBC effectively has is, is lessened. I mean, that filters down the institution in sort of complex contradictory ways, but you know, the result of that is very clear. I mean, Needless to say, if you're director general of the BBC, you have an interest in denying that um, at the same time as you have an interest in trying to negotiate um, these kind of dif- difficulties where, and trying to keep the government sort of on side, basically. You can't say that. But just, on, just on the Blair government, I've just got a little clip here of Alistair Campbell, who's a former spin doctor to Tony Blair, welcoming what happened in terms of the victory for Gary Lineker. I think it's a complete and total vindication for Gary Lineker. But I agree with him that Tim Davy has handled a very, very difficult situation very badly at first, but has then recognised the mistake the BBC has made and he sought quickly to rectify it. And that's a good thing. And I think there are big, big lessons in this. This is about much more than Gary Lineker. There are lessons for the BBC. When you are subject to this right-wing political pressure, you should resist it and stand up to it, not pander to it. I think there are lessons for your chairman that he is damaging the brand globally of the BBC. Okay. When Alistair Campbell was spin doctor for New Labour, um, the BBC top brass was forced out. And that they were forced out over the coverage of the Iraq war, just a quick reminder to everyone, that nobody responsible for the Iraq war was forced to resign over a catastrophe which killed hundreds of thousands of people. The only people who resigned were either people who opposed it, people like Robin Cook, um, or people who were deemed to be critic or overly critical the BBC but wasn't that quite a big moment in hobbling the BBC because it made it more susceptible to 
government pressure when you had the top brass forced out under new Labour and that helped pave the way to where we are today. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the right's not wrong when they turn around occasionally and say this was the same under the, under the Blair government. It was. Um, not, it's not only that, but, but um, I mean, kind of ironically, given what happened to them, but um, both the chair and the director general were very close to, to, uh, to new Labour. So we have this kind of um, institu- this, this insular- insularity, which from the outside looks like institutional corruption, but from the inside feels like, well, these are just the right people for the job mm. and we trust them and so on, and they're a good chap. Um, that's just quite normal or seen as being quite normal in the sort of you know, upper echelons of British society. Um, and it is, it is a bi- bipartisan problem, you know, and there's no point denying that. The, 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 question, the question is one which applies across... Um, parties, which is the constitutional one, if you want to put things in those sort of boring terms. The, 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 it's all very well, like Alistair Campbell, and I saw a statement for Labour along the same line saying, oh, the Director General should be brave, or the leadership shouldn't cave into the government, or they shouldn't do this, or they shouldn't do that. Look, this is just moralising a problem. I mean, they shouldn't be cowards, and they shouldn't cave into the government, but it, the, it's not your role as in, in politics to be making making judgments on people's moral character like that. I mean, you're, you're very welcome to do it. Like, I have no objection to doing that. But that's not politics. Um, what politics should involve is what are the mechanisms of democratic and political accountability here? The problem isn't just that the leadership caved. It's the fact that it has that it exists in a circumstance in which it's the, the political it isn't it can't turn around to the government and just tell them to piss off. Like, so Labour put out this rather strange statement, and I'm not sure who, if it was just one of those off-the-record ones or if it was actually published, which I saw on social media, which was that uh, the BBC leadership should be laughing at the um, at ministers who are, like, um, putting under pressure over Gary Lineker. Well, if you believe that, then you should adopt a policy which would make it constitutionally possible for the leadership of the BBC to laugh in the face of the government. That would be a genuinely independent broadcaster. What we have is not a genuinely independent broadcaster because the government appoints the board. And even if so, even and then even if the board were mindful to be able to um, push back politically against the government, they know that they have to go back to the government for the license fee and they know they have to go back to the government to negotiate the the charter. So there's this quasi-independence. The top of the BBC can't afford to not take the political views of the government seriously. They have to try and maintain a legitimacy with the public, which is was the problem with this affair. And they had to try and maintain their political support of key operators in Westminster and the people they know control the purse strings and the negotiation over the charter. Now, there's nothing controversial about any of these points, but apparently they just never seem to enter into basic public debate until recently. People seem to be maybe more aware of this. I saw John Simpson the other day was saying that, look, we need to do something about these mechanisms of accountability. The BBC doesn't have the um, ability to stand up to political pressure. And you can do something about that, right? Labour could turn around and they say, we're going we can, we can, we can to make the BBC com- completely politically independent. But the problem is that from the opposition's position, they think they're going to get into government. They want to use these leverages of political power. So with, with one recent exception, it's never been the policy of the Labour government to make the BBC more independent. It was Jeremy Corbyn, when he was leader of the Labour Party, did make a speech along these lines saying the BBC should be made more independent. And there was a sort of hysterical jumping up and down about Stalinism or something, as there always was in those years. Um, but that should be the policy. Um, it should be one of genuine in- independence. And that would allow the BBC and journalists in the BBC to report more freely, to know that they had the back of the lead. The, the leadership of the BBC has their back because that that's what creates this broader environment 
which shapes how impartiality is is, is, is is in practice like understood. And what we need is a very radical change at the BBC. In my view, a much more intense program of reform, upholding the BBC's institutional structure, devolving it. And we've done lots of work on that in the Media Reform Coalition. And um, I do hope people will join us for the Media Democracy Festival, which is in a couple of weeks in um, Birkbeck in London on Saturday the 25th. Um, where we can talk about some of these options. But the basic policy, there should be a basic policy agreement across parties. It's not appropriate for a government to be able to appoint people um, head of a notionally independent media organisation. That shouldn't be a controversial position. It shouldn't be. We shouldn't live in a country where a sports pundit um, can lose their job for criticising the government. I mean, to me, this whole affair, every discussion, every debate I've listened to, just, just ignoring the central point, do we think it's politically legitimate that a, a sports pundit can be driven out of their job for upsetting the Home Secretary? Does anybody think that? I mean, sure, there are probably a few people who think that. But, um, that, that, you know, anybody with an ounce of sense or any, like, um, investment in the idea of democrat independent democratic deliberation and actual democracy surely cannot be defending the kind of model um, which we have here. And so, you know, something needs to be done about it. And I do hope... But this particular affair um, has, has, has drawn attention to some of these constitutional weaknesses and start to get people thinking seriously about what kind of BBC we want in this country. Um, not, not just to think about the BBC like critically, which we have to do. How can the BBC be different? Um, how can we address some of the problems that this has highlighted? I think that's the really important question. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Just finally then, I mean, in terms of how much of an opportunity do you think this presents? I mean, what was interesting here is you saw the power of collective action, which was staff, largely freelancers, who fought back against the politicised management. So I don't know what lessons are there. I mean, some will go a bit sulkily. Well, Gary Lineker, I mean, he said things about Jeremy Corbyn, which were politically hostile, and he wasn't disciplined um, for that. But, you know, it strikes me that whatever you think about Gary Lineker's politics, this or the other, this actually, you know, he, he did do what was a very good thing, which should be celebrated. And so, what, you know, given the hysteria over refugees and migrants, anyone who has a prominent position and who is respected and admired doing that helps. There's no question about that. Um, but, you know, it strikes me that the, the what's happened over the last few years, it's gone further than the past few years, but is 
the right have been very good at shaping political discourse by a delegitimizing any political opinion that isn't right wing and b cry bullying at the same time and pretending that they're the ones being silenced and marginalized mm. as they used to bully pit the entire right wing media which they then use to, uh, as pressure for example on the bbc because they know there's no equivalent pressure coming from the left so i'm just wondering is this an opportunity to kind of drive back this you know an ever ever more radicalized right which just treats any political discourse which is not right wing. i hope so i hope so i mean my my instincts i don't i don't know this this is just my like, sort of uh guess is that they probably didn't really want gary Lewis to be dropped they just wanted to keep shouting and complaining and jumping up and down about it forever like um which they will now probably will continue to do i think there's an extent to which the strat the political strategy from the right isn't actually dependent on victories as as we would understand it because really what they're trying to do is is constantly mobilize people around the around these these issues right they don't they they do want to like um create a cult a certain culture of fear at the bbc mm. um i think the problem that they faced with gary lineker was that because he's quite popular and 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 was backed by his by his peers right so that that was key i think in terms of like resistance i hope it would encourage people at the BBC to feel like they can question the leadership a bit more. Because basically how yeah. it's important to remember within the BBC, although we don't hear a lot publicly about the BBC, and that's not so different to any other workplace in that respect, but um, that there are people in the BBC, a lot of people in the BBC who are not happy with the politicization of the leadership, who are trying, who have faced like years and years of cuts. Now we can have criticisms of like the, the structure, but I think it's important to say that the reform of the organization has to be based on the people within the organization having an environment in which they can do better work, where they, can, where they can do better journalism, where they can produce better culture for everybody. That should be that should be our aim. So I think the challenge here is hopefully it will inspire people who work in the industry as well. I mean, I think one of the things about this is it's a bit easier for Gary Lineker because I mean he's incredibly well paid and um, he's he's a public figure. And then when he was backed by a few people, that made a sort of mini collective action very effective. But I do hope that people are heartened by that, um, what effectively amounted to like a, a mini sort of strike at the upper echelons of the BBC. Um, he was just not as vulnerable as most, a, lo a lot of cultural workers and journalists at the sort of lower level are. But I hope, I, I do hope that this will like, yeah, people will feel um, buoyed by this because it is a significant turnaround. And I think we'll see what happens to the chair. But I did notice earlier that when Tim David, the director, the director general, made a statement about the status of the chair, he didn't, he wasn't, you know, going out of his way to support him, which I, I, I mean, my read of that in British public life probably means that uh, he's expecting him to, to be leaving. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's the outcome. Um, yeah. And that certainly would, that certainly would be um, a positive development. I mean, that was a very questionable appointment and I, and I wrote about it at the time. So yes, we, hopefully this will be a bit of a turnaround and hopefully it'll be an opportunity for people at the BBC to feel more um, uh, confident about doing better journalism and us to all have a collective conversation about you know, how we could build a better institution in which they can do that. Brilliant stuff, Tom. Um, just to say again, to repeat, do get his book, uh, The BBC, The Myth of a Public Service. Ch Tom is the chair, as he pointed out there, for Media Reform coalition and they are having their conference in uh the 25th of march from 11 a.m to 5 30 uh, p.m uh 25th of march yes yeah, saturday and you can look if you go to media reform uk on twitter you can also get all the details there and follow tom on t underscore 
sorry, no, TA underscore Mills. Uh, do you follow him for more insight on the state of the British media? Tom, as ever, real pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. See you in a bit. Take care. Great stuff as ever. If you're watching live, do you press like and subscribe. Let's bring in, because we've left a waiting now, which is very rude of me, Shyster Aziz, the brilliant Shyster Aziz, who has many caps, former BBC journalist, which is obviously exceptionally relevant right now, um, and also of three hijabis. Hey, Shyster. Actually, before we talk about the BBC, like that element, and you, because you used to be a journalist uh, there, tell me about the three hijabis, because people might not have heard of it. Hi, Owen. So the three hijabis are a trio of British Muslim women. Um, we came about because of the horrific levels of racism that were thrown at our three young black England players following the final of the men's Euros in Wembley um, when we lost to Italy and they missed the penalties. And so that then led to an horrific avalanche of racist abuse but also before we got to that point we had the government and the then home secretary of the day Priti Patel picking a fight uh, with uh, the football team um, and other senior politicians in the government uh, accusing them of being Marxists and various other things because they wanted to take the knee so we came about because of that uh, we launched a petition the day the morning after the final uh, calling on the government and tech companies to work together and football to work together to ban racists from football for life. We've got 1.2 million signatures. The well-known former anti-racist MP, uh, Prime Minister, I should say, Boris Johnson, that guy who referred to women who look like me as letterboxes and bank robbers, uh, spoke about our petition in Parliament and said he agreed with the fact that something needed to be done. So we're proud football fans and we're really... Um, we're really proud of the fact that people came together and we believe in the transformative power of football. And just to end on this point, Owen, we're also the proud daughters of migrants and refugees. So we've been following this story uh, very closely because it's very personal to us. Of course. Now, you're a former BBC journalist, and one of the things I want to talk to you is the revolving door between the BBC and the Tories. Quick rundown. Boris Johnson, uh, twice-hired veteran BBC journalist Gito Harry when he was Mayor of London and Prime Minister. David Cameron hired the BBC's controller of English news output, Craig Oliver, as his spin doctor. George Osborne hired the BBC producer, Theo Rogers, as his spin doctor, later married her. Theresa May hired Robbie Gibb, the former head of political programmes. Gibb is a particularly pernicious example because he started off at the BBC. Then he ended up chief of staff to Francis Maud when he was Tory shadow chancellor. Then he went back to the BBC to be head of their political programming. Then he went to become director of communications uh, to Theresa May. Then he went to found the hard right news channel, a rival to the BBC, GB News. Then he went back to the BBC again, now on its board. And in the words of, of, uh, of, um, of Lewis Goodall, a brilliant uh, journalist who was forced out of the BBC, basically, said uh, Gibb made his life really, really hard, making him feel under constant surveillance uh, for his coverage. Doesn't sound like a den of leftiness. Well, it's a pretty amazing roll call of honour that you've just read out there. And that's just in recent years as well. We also are, um, you know, in the 20 years since the war in Iraq. I know you spoke to Tom about that as well. And there was a big spectacular fallout in relation to the government and relationship with the BBC then as well. And it's just been ongoing since then. So, I mean, I, I want to be really clear here, Owen. I spent more than 10 years working as a BBC producer uh, in the newsroom. And, you know, there are fantastic journalists there. And I know you know that as well, uh, you know, producing incredible programs and news and you know we have an incredible public service broadcaster in the BBC but it's been undermined over many decades it's under scrutiny like never before by an extremely 
nativist right-wing government, something that we've never had in this country at this kind of extreme before as well. And if you put the two together, it's a disaster, not only for the BBC, but also for those of us who believe in the integrity of journalism and free speech. And, you know, I think what's happened in the last week, many people at the BBC have had enough. And yes, some of them are very well known and famous faces who get paid a lot of money and they're freelancers. But what they've managed to do is galvanise a lot of support and really lift people's spirits and make people understand that if anything is to change on the back of this, it will only happen when, you know, solidarity is put into action and people start speaking up and pushing back against what's going on inside the institution. I mean, in terms of, I mean, we talked, Tom spoke there about, you know, kind of the BBC and its lack of independence from the government. I mean, the problem is, as he pointed out, that whoever is in power, it's not, it's like, it's like the electoral system. You know, there are those who say, well, let's reform the electoral system. But the problem is Labour doesn't do that because when they win in the first past the post, they're like, well, why we don't need to change it now. We won under it. And it's similar to the BBC. It's like the, the opposition, you know, the, Labour doesn't like it now. But when they come to power, they'll just do what New Labour did. Do you see what I mean? It's just a, a long-standing problem of how you make it independent. Yeah, absolutely. So the BBC is being used as a political football. It's been massively undermined. Its resources have been cut. And yes, you know, there are many issues around, particularly around its political coverage of Brexit and obviously before then as well. No one can deny that. Uh, obviously, plenty of people do deny it, as we both know. Um, but I think we have to be a little bit careful because we, I think people who believe in a free media and believe in democracy uh we need to stand up for the bbc and we need to, dem to demand much much better from its senior management you know i i do believe the chair needs to go obviously there's an investigation going on in relation to his um what he has and hasn't been doing with, with you know guaranteeing a loan to boris johnson etc etc but you know those individuals do not represent the vast majority of employees at the BBC. So I'm a working class Muslim woman, Pakistani background. I'm the first person in my family to go to university. I ended up getting a job at the BBC and becoming a BBC journalist. And, you know, for my family, that meant so much to them. They're so proud of that fact. And, you know, I worked my way up uh, to, you know, work on a number of programmes. Um, and that doesn't happen every day. OK. And what we've seen as this country's political environment has become more and more toxic, we've seen the BBC just being battered and bruised by this government. And yes, the people who run it have not helped at all. But I think we need to just really remember that we need a strong independent public broadcaster and like Tom said we need a firewall between any government specifically this very right-wing nativist Tory government but if Labour come into power then they also we also need to see a firewall between them and our public broadcaster. I'm interested in just pointing out to you well actually the role of football um, because you know football is the national sport it's something which millions and millions of people brings huge joy. It's the central focus to a large degree of lots of people's lives. It's something which is very much at the heart of lots of families um, across the country. And But there's always been a problem with, with racism within the sport. But at the same time, as this country has become more and more diverse, that means that particularly younger players tend to represent the diversity which, which exists. So, so a, a, a sport often blighted with racism has actually become a sphere in which lots of anti-racist organising has taken place, not least those footballers of colour who feel, who've, who've been able to speak out about their experiences. So where, where, where's football in 2023 with all of this? 
Well, I think there's the official version of football, which is this multi-billion pound industry that is overwhelmingly has remained unchecked and is basically um, quite far removed from the average football fan. You know, people, football fans are priced out of going to watch their teams, but that's the Premier League. If we look at football, really, at its essence, it's a community sport, uh, you know, across the country, uh, it's played at very grassroots level, and it still remains one of the main domains for working class men and women to, you know, become these household names, to earn lots of money, um, to live a, a lifestyle that no, nobody in their families ever has. And I think that's pretty incredible itself. But more importantly, it is a massive a vehicle for change and transformative change. If we just look in the last 13 years of Tory rule, you know, we've got um, food banks that have been set up by football clubs up and down the country. I obviously don't want that to happen. I don't think we should have food banks in this country. We should have a welfare state that functions. And more importantly, we should have a government that wants to take care of everyone. Um, but nonetheless, those food banks have been set up by fans. Projects are happening every day across the country. Um, I uh, was a part of the FA's um, uh, part of the FA's advisory uh, group working with refugees and migrants. And on the issue of refugees and migrants, football clubs up and down this country are doing really powerful, transformative work across cities. You know, Burnley has one of the best policies in relation to working with migrants and refugees. There's been issues around some of their so-called fans, shocking behaviour, and, and, and all the rest of it. But the Bottom line is their football team is doing incredible work. This isn't talked about very often, Owen. There's the ugly and dark side of football, um, and football needs to take responsibility for that. So the domestic violence spikes when England play in particular, that's never changed. That, that the, Those rates of domestic violence have sadly never changed. That's quite shocking and outrageous. The misogyny and everything else. But I think um, we should be really proud of the fact that football fans have been very vocal about migrants and refugees and the rights of migrants and refugees. And they're doing lots of great anti-racism work. And I think we should definitely shine a light on that as well. I'm also wondering just in terms of, you know, look, for a long time now, we've seen this really escalating vicious war in rhetoric and policy on migrants and refugees. I think I have to say the there's a unhelpful demarcation which is often applied to migrant and refugees when life is far more complicated for the lived experiences. Anyone knows who's, who's, who's spoken to those arriving in this country from many different countries. Um, Britain takes in, of course, far fewer refugees than Germany or France, and rich countries overall take in globally way, way less um, than, than poor countries. Um, but the, it really has been a vicious, vicious war, and the rhetoric has been despicable absolutely despicable, including in newspapers. So I'm wondering, how much is this an opportunity? Because a household name who is really actually very admired um, across the political spectrum um, has taken on not just the government, the BBC, but he took on the he took on the government because the government, well, well that's what he's criticising, but also they're obviously very influential in the BBC. And he won. So, I mean, is this something, how much is an opportunity is this? I think it's a massive opportunity. So, you know, the government have scored a huge own goal on this, just like they did with our uh, men's England football team when they decided to go and attack them. And many, many of us, 1.2 million people signed our petition, but it went way beyond that. People were like, we're not having this. We're not having you targeting Marcus Rashford. We're not having you targeting our national football team. Stop it. 
um, and there was some backtracking going on. Now, with Gary Lineker, the fact of the matter is, overwhelmingly, people know Gary Lineker is a good bloke. He's a decent guy who um, is not a gatekeeper. He's opened up the gates in the BBC to encourage multiracial talent to come through. Uh, you know, many of his colleagues, you know, Alex Scott, for example, others, uh, Ian Wright, you know, stood up for him. Now, they didn't do that um, without thinking through the consequences of how it might impact them. Ian Wright went on record to say that if the BBC you know, don't sort themselves out uh, and continue the way that they are with Gary Lineker, he's out. He said, I'm not going to work for them again. That's never happened before. This is pretty incredible. Um, over the um, last few days, we've seen football fans holding up banners saying, you know, refugees and migrants welcome. Good. That is overwhelmingly what, you know, the face of this country, you know, up and down this country, I know this because, you know, I, I spend a lot of time listening and talking and meeting people who are volunteers, who are doing incredible work, um, you know, with vulnerable people, not just migrant and refugees, but people who are, you know, feeling like they don't know how to make ends meet because of the cost of living crisis. Football fans are you know, traditionally they've been, we've been portrayed as a bunch of knuckleheads and racists and violent people. Now, I'm not saying there's not been that side of the story as well, but I think it's important to focus and acknowledge on the transformative power of football. And I really hope that what happens now is that more people understand in the BBC, outside the BBC and football fans as well, that we can't be quiet. We cannot stay silent in the face of such aggression and such, you know, horrifying language being used that has real life consequences. Um, my family are from Pakistan, okay? We have the, one of the largest refugee populations in the whole world. Does that mean Pakistan treats all refugees very well? No, of course it doesn't. But the fact of the matter is a vast majority of the world's refugees are not trying to get to England. And even if they were, that's their right, okay? Uh, but they're not. And the way Suella Braverman and others are framing this is just despicable. But I think they've gone too far. And even by their low standards, they've taken this to such an extreme that it's backfired on them. And just quickly, lastly, a really good point raised by David Baratta. Would an independent BBC be much different? British media is dominated by upper middle class Tory voters without the entire media being also reformed and diversity, more diversity in it. Wouldn't the BBC still be in the hands of the Tories? I think, you know, a kind of really key point is the British media nationally is very socially representative. It's a representative of class, according to the government's own figures. It's second only to medicine in terms of how socially exclusive it is. And people of colour are really, really underrepresented within the British media. So you get a British tabloid media, which is just overtly often racist, but you often get in the likes of the BBC a lack of people with lived experience who can talk about matters of race in, in, in ways which, well, which relate to their lives. Yeah, so what I'd say is that things are definitely changing. You know, I can see that myself in terms of when I'm, you know, switching on my radio or when I'm online, there's there's representation is shifting at the BBC and other places as well. And that is through very hard work that has happened. And we stand on the shoulders of giants as well. People have been banging away, knocking on the door for a long, long time. But of course, you know, when you, the, the media in this country, predominantly journalists are from elite backgrounds. They are overwhelmingly private educated. So of course there's a problem here and it's not just at the BBC, but the BBC needs to be at the front of making the change. So others will follow. But I, I do want to say that I do think change is happening. That's a good positive note, at least to, fall back on and um, Shaisa honestly it's always a pleasure to have you and really really eloquently and brilliantly 
pot. Very educational. I learned a lot, and I'm sure everyone else did as well. So thanks so much as ever. Um, do follow Shaista Aziz on social media, S-H-A-I-S-T-A, and then Aziz, A-Z-I-Z. Um, but I will speak to you soon. Lots of love and solidarity and speaking about Take care. Take care. Take care you as well. Great stuff from both of them. Really, really comprehensive there. I think we covered quite a lot of ground. Um, I think the fallout of this will continue. Um, we'll see. I mean, I've done, if you look at my um, YouTube page, done three videos on this in the last, just Gary Lineker's face all over my YouTube channel. I'm not obsessed with Gary Lineker, okay? Uh, it's just an important, um, I think a very important moment. Um, I've written a column about it, which will, you will be able to read if you want to read my stuff, uh, either later today or tomorrow. On, on the wider point about the attempt by the right to permanently reshape British political discourse and turn this country into a hostile environment for all but the most reactionary political opinions. Um, so, yeah, I think this is a it's, it's just an important moment, I think. But we will see how this pans out. Got lots of interviews this week, by the way, including with Mehdi Hassan. Um, my brilliant compañero, who um, I remember when he lived when he was here in Britain before 2015. Um, so once did a cartoon of me and him as Batman and Robin. I was Robin. That's fine. Don't worry, I can take that. Um, but he's got a brilliant book out, um, How to Win Every Argument. I think that's what it's called. Um, we've got another brilliant book by, by an American author, which uh, we're exploring themes like socialism for the rich, that kind of thing. So that will come out. Also, lots more to come. Sorry, we also have another interview with James Meadway, The Economist, because on Wednesday it is the budget, which I'd forgotten about because they're being very quiet about it. Not forgotten about it and that I'm not going to do my job. So we're going to scrutinise uh, the budget. He's an expert economist. He, he will go into detail. We'll do like a, a reaction video, like 20 minutes, so it'll be very thorough but concise. So check that out on Wednesday because we will have all the best analysis um, for... For, for the budget, if I do, if I say so myself. Well, it's not me doing the analysis. I'm not exactly bragging. It's James Meadway doing it. Okay. Cheers, everyone. Great stuff. Really fascinating. It's been a great, very interesting few days, and I think heartening in lots of ways. And I hope we do build on this in terms of pushing back it, the racist tide and the scapegoating of refugees and migrants, which has spiraled out of control. But I do think, if I'm going to end on a little punchy note, the fact it fell to a sports journalist has so much to do with the vacuum left by a Labour Party, which is unwilling to offer moral leadership and fight back against these, the vicious racism of this Conservative government and its media allies. It should not be the case that a sports pundit, even though he was wrongly um, undermined and attacked for what he said, should not fall to sports pundits to take on this horrendous, despicable war on refugees and migrants. A Labour Party, which has courage determination and leadership should be offering that and it isn't so it does fall to all of us and we all have to do our bit i would say to fight back against this horrible toxic war great that's enough for me do press like and subscribe check out the videos every day we've got videos every day this week as ever well not as ever but mostly uh take care of yourselves and i will see you in a bit Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.